Wow, that was beautiful. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be back with you. Uh, Last time I was here, uh, it was July, and it was sunny and warm, and people were happy. There were butterflies outside and bunnies, and people were eating candy canes, and I mean, it was just, it was magnificent. What have you people done? I... uh, yeah, it is, it is cold here. I don't know whether you've noticed, but uh, it's, it's so good to be back with you. I was thinking, uh, last weekend, I was speaking at a youth conference uh, in the Smoky Mountains in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I was thinking about going to you know, youth conferences and camps and retreats. How many of you, when you were a kid, uh, went to a church retreat or a camp or a conference at some point? All right, l- lots of you. I don't know what your experience was like, but uh, for me, on the last night of camp or retreat or a conference, the same thing happened. The speaker would tell uh, a, a story, maybe even a, a sad story, and then uh, would have people start to contemplate this one question, what if you died tonight? Now, we would hear that every single camp, every single retreat, it's an important question, you should be contemplating eternity. That, that, that's good. But what if you died tonight? You know, I mean, everyone would be looking around each other going, does he know something we don't know? You know, like, what if you died tonight? No one ever asked the question, what if you don't die tonight? No one ever asked the question like, what if the buses actually make it back home? How are you going to live? It seemed like all of the camps that I went to They were preparing us to die, and no one was preparing us to live. Now, I am thrilled to be with you guys for the next couple of weeks, and um, we're going to be doing like a a mini-series called Awake My Soul, and we're going to be talking about how we live. We're going to be talking about life, and uh, we're going to talk about how uh, your soul gets life, how you feel a sense of, um, of buoyancy and hope and energy in your soul, and what actually deadens your soul, what is actually kind of working against you as well. And, and we're going to spend all of our time in the book of Psalms, such a fantastic book of, of poetry and, and you know, these, these songs and just this prolific wisdom in this particular book. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to crack it open. Uh, to the Psalms, we're going to spend some time in the unquestionably the most famous Psalm of all time. That is, of course, Psalm 23. Yeah, you guys have been paying attention. So turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the most recognized Psalm. Some of the most iconic language comes from this Psalm. Some of this language is synonymous with different parts of our lives, different moments in our lives. The 23rd Psalm has also been an inspiration for scores of musical compositions, from Johann Sebastian Bach to Pink Floyd, from Johnny Cash to Dave Matthews, and from Coolio to Kanye West. Yeah, all of these folks have lifted the words from Psalm 23. They did not come up with them, they actually lifted them from from David, as it turns out. Even the movie The Titanic which was a long movie. Right when the, when the ship is going down, someone starts to recite the 23rd Psalm, 
We all went to see that movie and we all knew how it was going to turn out, yet we went to it anyway. I'm not exactly sure why. Now, the originator of this psalm uh, is, is, is David, and, and this is loaded with, with incredible imagery. Now, the 23rd psalm is, is one that uh, many of us have heard, whether we've been in the church all our lives, or whether we're new to church, or whether we've never been in church. People are familiar with this, this psalm. It's possibly the most familiar chapter in the entire Bible. And because we are so familiar with it, it's possible that all of these beautiful metaphors and, and word pictures and language has been hiding under our nose all of our lives and we have never really kind of studied what this means. What does this language mean? These phrases we can just recite, but we don't actually even know what they mean. Now, one of the reasons I think that this psalm is, is so popular is because in just six verses, it addresses three of the most important questions about God that one could ever ask. It, in, it, it asks these primal questions that are very honest and bare bone, very human questions. These questions are this, who is God, where is God, and what is God doing? So I want to use these three questions to guide us through these six verses uh, in this particular text. So let's jump in. The first one is this, who is God? This text starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now, David is borrowing the imagery from his surroundings. David was a shepherd. His father, Jesse, was a shepherd. David was the youngest of eight. And, and taking care of sheep is what this guy knew. Had David been a plumber, Psalm 23 may have felt very different. And this, this starts out with, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, because we, uh, most of us are not in the business of raising livestock, a lot of these metaphors can be lost because we're interpreting them with a 21st century bias. We're kind of like skimming across this text without really understanding what is going on underneath. So in the ancient world, when a shepherd was taking care of sheep, this was a very special relationship, both a business responsibility and family relationship with a flock of sheep. Um, and then there was a, a sense of like affection with these sheep. A, a shepherd would be responsible for uh, the health and for the nourishment and for the safety of these, these group of beasts, this flock of sheep, right? And uh, the shepherd would not just, you know, like clock in and clock out, the, you know, nine to five. The shepherd would, would live with these animals, the shepherd would eat among them. The shepherd would sleep among them. I mean, these were like the shepherd's pets or, or, or his family. And uh, he was responsible for, for nourishing and raising these particular animals. And this is the metaphor that was used uh, in Psalm 23. Now, I grew up around a lot of sheep. I am from Australia, and uh, there are five times as many sheep as there are people in Australia. So for every friend you had, there were five sheep that would follow you as well, which is a little strange. But uh, there are 100 million sheep in Australia. Now, I know that you thought it was just koalas, kangaroos, and poisonous snakes, but uh, there are a lot of sheep in Australia as well. 
Now, where I grew up, it was in this small country town, and uh, when I was in elementary school, my parents bought a piece of property on the outskirts of town, so we weren't in a subdivision or anything, and they decided to build a house in, in this particular field. It was not particularly big, but it was surrounded by farms, and was surrounded by sheep farms. So uh, growing up around sheep is something that I really knew. Now, I wasn't a shepherd, but uh, when I was riding my bike or when we were out playing or whatever, we would be surrounded by sheep. And uh, we learned, my brother and I learned somewhere along the line that there was a scientific theory that if you took a sheep with a very, very woolly, uh, you know, like sort of at the peak of its season and, and it was really, really thick wool, where they sort of look like big cotton balls, you know, if you took one of those sheep and you flipped it, if you could flip it onto its back, then it's possible that you would immobilize the sheep, that it would just like move around and it could not actually move. It would be stuck there. Now, we felt like it was part of our responsibility to the scientific community to see whether we could actually make this work and then go uh, and report our findings, you know? So on this one particular day, we like jumped the fence and we were around this flock of sheep and we managed to find a particularly woolly, full, yet vulnerable sheep that was a little bit, you know, had wandered away from the flock a little bit. And so uh, we, we scared all the other sheep away and then we like just isolated this one particular sheep. My brother was in front and I was behind and we planned all, this all out, you know, diagrams and all of that sort of stuff, right? And so then my brother started walking towards the front of the sheep and I was standing behind it. And this sheep was like, you know, shifting a little bit and looking around like, hey, bat, you know, like what's going on, you know? Um, and we're like, easy, easy. Like, and we, and we took a couple of steps and then like when we got close enough on the count of three, he dove for the feet, the front two feet, and I dove for the back feet. And in just a superb act of planning, we flipped this thing on its back now, instead of it hitting the ground and making a thud sound, it was like it landed on a cloud, you know? It was like, ooh, this thing was like, Matt, hey, this is okay, you know? And we stood back, and it was completely immobilized. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. The sheep's just hanging there. Now, we're not, we're not cruel people in Australia. I mean, we, we flipped it back after a couple of days. So... Um, Come on, don't judge me. You know, I grew up in this little town. We had two television channels. There was no internet. There were no, like, cell phone games. The best video game was Pac-Man, okay? So we flipped sheep. That's what we did, okay? Don't judge me. But sheep, as we discovered, are, are these timid, uh, vulnerable creatures. And they do not like being isolated from the rest of the flock, and we probably gave them good reason for that. Sheep actually rate fairly low on the intelligence scale within the animal kingdom. And this is largely because the way that sheep make decisions is not a, a rational evaluation of the information and then making a, a, a rational decision. They make decisions by simply following what everyone else is doing. Now, I can't imagine why this text uses this metaphor for human behavior. It just, it just doesn't make sense to me. The Lord is my shepherd, David said. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
David knew that when the Lord is your shepherd, the outcome is a deep sense of contentment. And this contentment is built upon the fact that the shepherd will supply all of your needs. But there are other shepherds that would lure us from the Lord being our shepherd. Some of us make achievement our shepherd. We follow the achievement shepherd. Now, the achievement shepherd promises that if you get a better job, if you get into a high income bracket, if you get a certain kind of house or move into a certain kind of neighborhood or you get to drive a certain kind of car, if you get to a certain point in your career, you shall no longer be in want. But it's not true. The shepherd of, of achievement is deceiving you. And our country is filled with people that are following the achievement shepherd, hoping that they will no longer be in want when they get a certain achievement. And when they reach that achievement, they realize that they are still in want. They still have need. And there's another elusive goal that is set out there, and they're hoping that that is going to satisfy them. Some of us follow the appearance shepherd. Now, the appearance shepherd promises you that if you fix that one thing about the way that you look, then you will no longer be in want. If you just lose a little bit of weight, then life is gonna be great. Or if you just work out a little bit more, or if you fix you know, that particular thing. You know what's interesting to me? Some of the most beautiful people that I have ever met are some of the most insecure. They're like, you know, I've gotta fix this. And you're like, what? They're like this, how can I live like this? It, it, it's astounding to me. The people who are following the appearance shepherd, they, they don't wanna be in want when they fix that particular thing, but as soon as they are obsessed by fixing one thing, then there is something else that they need to fix. Some people are following the approval shepherd. This shepherd will cause us to do unreasonable things just to be liked by others or to be admired by others. The approval shepherd will ultimately lead us to exhaustion. We meet people's needs, we do what they want, we wanna make people happy, so we will no longer be in want. If uh, approval is your shepherd, Psalm 23 for you might be like this, approval is my shepherd, I am constantly in want. I don't have time to lie down in green pastures. I can't afford to be beside quiet waters. It erodes my soul. The ancient wisdom of this psalm said that there's only one shepherd that will leave your heart satisfied and your soul content. When you follow this shepherd, the Lord, you shall no longer be in want. And interestingly enough, this shepherd tells you to lie down. The text says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And then this stunning phrase, he restores my soul. How many need their soul restored? I mean, this is the idea of being pulled in so many different directions. The hurry and the worry of life, the pace of life. 
You're so overcommitted. You're just trying to meet needs and get things done and just trying to stay afloat. And the idea of your soul being restored is the idea of you being put back together on the inside. Your insides being repaired and being healed and coming back together and being in a, in a place of peace. That is what the shepherd wants to do for us. He wants us to actually find rest. Now, I have three daughters, three half Australian, half American little girls. Uh, one is six, one's four, and one is two. There is a lot of estrogen in my house, right? Now, I am responsible, uh, as we divide up the parenting responsibilities, I am responsible for bath time. It's bath time with dad. So we fill up the bathtub, and my three little girls jump in, and they just, bath time is just fantastic. Now, it's also my responsibility to try to wash them during bath time, and they are like slippery fish, and they have absolutely no interest in me washing them, none at all. So I will like be trying to grab an arm or an ankle or an ear and like you know, pull them over so that I can wash them. They will squirm and they will wiggle and I mean they just will not sit still so that I can wash them. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm trying to cleanse you. I'm trying to wash you. I'm trying to teach you about hygiene and all of these things, you know, like... I am trying to restore you if you would just be still. Is it possible that our lives are so filled with stuff, so busy, we, we manage to cram something in every moment of the day? Well, you're waiting at stoplights while you're driving, like, I might check my email, you know, like, Oh, don't look at me like you're all innocent, okay? It's like, is it possible to cram more stuff into the amount of time that we have? We fill our lives with so much clutter. We're so busy. It's a tragedy when you walk into a restaurant and you see a family and every one of the family is on their cell phone, you know? Pass the ketchup, bleep. You know, like, the really sad thing about the, being engrossed in, in mobile devices like that when you're out in public is that you are essentially saying to everyone, Whatever, what, what else is going on here is not as interesting as what is going on in here, and if it gets interesting at some point, I'll let you know and I'll re-engage with you, but until then, I don't want to know what's happening here, I want to know what's happening everywhere else in the world. What are my friends doing? What a device to build such insecurity in people. Man, everyone else is having so much fun. I'm stuck in, you know, reading about their stuff on Twitter or whatever it is, you know? Is it possible that our lives are so busy, our Father just wants to wash us and cleanse us and restore us? But we're slippery and we're busy. This progression, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. Does, does God really want us to rest? Some of us have this idea that like, God wants us to work. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to work. Think about the creation order. Human beings were created on the sixth day. 
Adam and Eve, right? What happened on the seventh day? Rest. Think about that. The first thing that God did after he created human beings is he said, all right, now I want you to go and lay down. You must be exhausted from being created. What an insight into the love of God. We cannot earn our love. We have his love. We cannot earn his love. We have it. The first thing, the first thing that God wanted us to do when human beings were created was to rest in the presence of God. What does God want you to do? He wants you to lie down. He wants you to be beside quiet waters and he wants to restore your soul. He wants to put you back together. About 1,600 years ago, Augustine said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Who is God? He is our shepherd. He will, uh, is the only one that can make us content when we follow that shepherd. The only one who will satisfy our souls will be when we follow this shepherd. All right, the second question. Where is God? Let's look at verse three. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, the idea of uh, God guiding us on particular paths. God has a path for us, leading us. You know, uh, Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord, lean on your own understanding, and always acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He wants to, he wants to lead you. Uh, Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. It's the idea of this path. So for my family, for the last um, eight, eight months or so, uh, we have really been asking God, what is, what is the path that you are leading us on? And since I was with you guys last, uh, we have left being at, at Willow Creek was where I was at for the last eight years. Uh, I was the teaching pastor, myself and Bill Hybels taught the weekend. And um, I have left doing that and we are now planning a church in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, uh, you may not know this, but the, the least likely age group for church attendance in all of America is, is people in their 20s. Uh, there, is, there has never been less people attending church in their 20s than there is today. And in fact, the 18 to 35-year-old group in America is one of the largest unreached people groups on the planet. So in Nashville, there are 100,000 college students, and 60% of them choose to stay after they graduate from college. So between 18 and 30, there are hundreds of thousands of people concentrated in this area. So we are running towards this age group because we see that you know, 10 years from now or even 20 years from now, uh, the church is heading towards some sort of crisis if we do not continue to try to reach different people, different kinds of people. So our church is called Church of the City. If you wanna follow our story, it's churchofthecity.com. And uh, we are going to be planting two churches uh, on, on Easter Sunday. So uh, we got two different, two different locations on Easter Sunday. We launched, we haven't even launched yet. But uh, on Friday night, I had 25 people at my house for one of our, one of our core groups. And we were just spending time, extended time in prayer, just asking God, to, to, to bless um, the city and asking God that we may join with what he's doing in the city. We're praying for blessing on other churches and all of that. 
And I was thinking, you know, I've gone from a church of 25,000 to a church of 25. And that has been the path that God has been leading us on. And it's been magnificent. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that um, next week and and beyond. But uh, it has just been amazing the way that God has led us. And this this verse has been one that uh, my wife and I and my little girls have been praying together as a family. May you guide us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Verse four says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, we start to see some real iconic language now. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death, this is an idea that we have heard. It is straight from this text that originated with this, the valley of the shadow of death. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does that even mean? I mean, is there a guy named Rod and he has a staff of, you know, 20 people and, like, and they comfort people? Like, I mean, what does this text actually mean? This is something that we're familiar with. This phrase is something we're familiar with. You rod and your staff, they comfort me. But what does it actually even mean? Well, a rod and a staff were two items that a shepherd would carry. Two apparatus or apparati or anyway, two, two items. A rod was a weapon. And it was not used on the sheep, it was used on predators. It was like a a short weapon like this. And when a wolf or when some other animal would come to try to devour the sheep, the shepherd would use this weapon to defend the sheep. It It was a weapon of protection. The other item was a long stick with a with a crook on the end, a hook kind of thing on the end. And that was an item that would help direct the sheep. So, you know, sheep hang out in a flock, and when one sheep starts going, oh, what's that over there? And then the whole flock start going that way. Then, then the shepherd would be able to just take this long stick, this hook, and just gently grab the front leg, and then just steer it back. And then the sheep would be like, oh, okay, you know, and then they would just, they would go back. So these two items were items of protection and direction. Now, why would you take such comfort in those? Why would you take comfort in the rod and the staff? Well, this is the idea that if even if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you can take comfort in the fact that you are being protected and you are being directed by God. You are being protected from things that you don't even know about and you are being directed in ways that you are completely unaware of. And if you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, take comfort in this. The rod and the staff are active. You are being protected and you are being directed. That is what we can take comfort in. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is active with these two items. Our shepherd is actively engaged in what is going on. And have you ever noticed this in verse four? Even though I walk through See that word? The word through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Some of you think that you have built a house in the valley of the shadow of death. And you haven't. On the authority of the word of God, you are moving through this season. You are moving through this valley. And every day that you are in the valley of the shadow of death is a day less than you are going to be in the valley of the shadow of death. You are moving through this. You don't live in the valley of the shadow of death. You are passing through it. 
you are passing through this season. And perhaps my favorite thing about this text is when the tense changes. Have you noticed this? So it begins with, the Lord is my shepherd. It's talking about the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. But in verse four, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. It doesn't say the Lord is with me. So when good times are happening, when he's laying down in green pastures, he's talking about the Lord. Hey, isn't God great? But when you're in the valley, you start talking to him. Isn't that true? You talk about God when things are great, but when things are bad, you don't say, what is God doing? You say, what are you doing? You talk to him. This is such a sign of intimacy here. It's not for the Lord is with me. It's this beautiful idea of in the most difficult times of your life, it's not the Lord who is with you, it is you. You are with me. What precious and and, and beautiful intimacy in these words. The whole tense changes when you're in a difficult time, it's you are with me, God. You, you are with me. My shepherd is with me right now in the valley of the shadow of death. I got a, a friend who is a pastor. He's a church planner. And his dad is a, a pastor as well. His dad has been a pastor for 20 years. And he's been at this one church for 20 years, faithfully been leading it for a couple of decades. Church has been going great. And he really sensed that God was leading him to leave and hand on the church on to the next generation. So after 20-something years, he gave the church a lot of notice, and they gave him a big send-off celebration and all of that, and, and he left. And then he and his wife said, all right, now what? We're going to go to God, and we're just going to say, like, what, what do you have next for us, Lord? So over the next couple of months, he started doing uh, interviews with people. He started meeting with different people, sending out resumes and all that sort of stuff. After a year, he'd done over 100 interviews, and, and no one had hired him. And then an entire another year went by and he still had not been hired back in a ministry position. And, and, and I said to my mate, I said, how's your dad doing? He said, you know, it's been really hard. He has a PhD in theology and he works as a courier driving across town delivering small packages. And it's confusing to him. And there've been some terrible days. There've been days where he's doubted himself There have been days where he has doubted God. But he said this. He said, for 20 years, he preached about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and now he smiles, and he says, firsthand, I know the comfort of the rod and the staff. He knows the intimacy of God in a very difficult and uncertain time. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Maybe you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death today. I want you to know that you don't live there, that you are going through it. And if you find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death, take comfort 
in the fact that God is with you and he is actively protecting and directing you. Whether you are aware of it or whether you are not aware of it. He's protecting you from things you don't know about and he's directing you in ways that you are unaware of. You can take comfort in the fact that the shepherd is in control. All right, third and last question. What is God doing? Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. What does this even mean? Preparing tables and enemies and presence of my enemies and all that. Well, in the ancient world, when two nations would go against one another in battle, when one nation was victorious over another nation, then they would capture, they would try to keep alive, they would capture the king or the highest ranking military leader then they would tie up that king. They would go into their respective city. They would go into the palace or the courts, the, the, the area of, of royalty. Then they would sit the king down at a table and then they would, all, they would go and they would get all of their best food, kill the fattened calves and the best livestock. They would get the best goblets and their best wine. They would sit the king there all tied up at the table and they would consume all of his goods in front of him. Now this was an act of shame and this was an act of celebration. You are defeated. This used to be all of yours and now it's ours. This is a nice goblet. Who did it belong to? Oh, your great grandfather. Well, thank you. This is working out quite nicely, you know. And they would mock them. This is the idea of of preparing a table in the presence of your enemies. The table was turned. The enemy was defeated and a celebration took place with their wealth paraded in their presence. So what is God doing? He takes the work of the enemy and he uses it for good. He actually prepares a table in the presence of the one who has tried to harm us. He takes our pain and our hurt and he turns the table. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament is the story of Joseph. You know this story, right? So, so Joseph gets betrayed by his brothers. He gets sold into slavery and then ultimately he ends up in prison. Then he spends a couple of years in prison and then he gets removed and elevated to being second in charge of all of Egypt. He's the prime minister of Egypt. And then there's just this climactic moment in the story where he comes face to face with his brothers, his flesh and blood who betrayed him. They wrote him off as being dead and, the, and, and, and Joseph recognizes them but they don't recognize him. Then he says, I'm your brother Joseph and they think, oh gosh, this is it. We're about to die. And in Genesis 50, some of the most staggering words in the Old Testament, verse 20, it says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What the enemy intended for harm, God wants to use for good. Romans 8:28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I have a friend who's an alcoholic but God turned the tables. And now after being sober for 25 years, he has helped hundreds of other people with substance abuse. I have another friend who was raised by a single mom. 
And she said, my mom was under-resourced and just completely overwhelmed. And that came with a lot of complexity as she was growing up. But you see, God turned the table. And now she has, she's a successful business owner, and she supports so many nonprofit ministries that are trying to love and help and resource and support single moms. God has turned the table. I got another friend who, who was abused as a child. But God turned the table. And he now lovingly and with profound understanding ministers and counsels other people as a Christian therapist. What is God doing? As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is preparing a table in the presence of your enemies. And he can turn your stories of defeat into stories of victory. He can turn your stories of failure into stories of success. He can turn your stories of pain into stories of healing. And he can turn your stories of brokenness into stories of beauty. God turns the table. That is what he does. That is what he does. And he is preparing a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And what the enemy intended for harm, God wants to use for good. And even in the valley of the shadow of death, you seen this? David doesn't say, well, back when things were good, my cup overflowed. And he's not saying, when I get out of the valley, then my cup is gonna overflow. He says, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, still you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. He's saying, even in a difficult time, I trust the shepherd. I know that he is actively protecting and directing me. I know that he is at work. He will supply my need. I can trust the shepherd more than I can even trust myself. More than I can trust my instincts or my perception of what is going on. I can trust the shepherd. And my cup overflows. And he knows that the shepherd is good. So in verse six, this beautiful text culminates with this. Surely, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know what he's saying? Watch out, people of God. Watch out. Goodness and love is following you. Goodness and love is coming after you. And even if you are in the valley of the shadow of death, goodness and love, look behind you, goodness and love is catching up. Goodness and love is following you. That is what is happening here. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord because we are his people. We are his flock. We are his sheep. And the shepherd lays down his life for his beloved sheep. We dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There are three groups of people that are in Psalm 23. And I wanna close by by praying for these three groups of people. The first is those who would say, I need my soul restored. Just the idea of God repairing me and putting me back together, I just wanna exhale. 
and I have been pulled in so many different directions and I'm so exhausted and I feel wrung out and I just want to rest and I want God to breathe into me. I want my soul restored. That could be you. Or maybe you would say, I am in the valley of the shadow of death right now. I want to pray that you would take great comfort in the direction and the protection, the rod and the staff. Take comfort in that. God is active and you are walking through it. And then the last group would be those who would say, well, I'm still waiting for God to turn the tables. I'm I'm sort of in the middle of that right now. You know, like I've had some difficult stuff that have happened, stuff that I'm responsible for or stuff that I'm not responsible for. But the tables haven't turned yet. This is not turned around. Like God is not using this for good yet that I can see and I am waiting for the tables to turn and I wanna pray that you would take heart. So as we get ready to close, I just wanna invite you, if you would say that I am in the, uh, I need my soul restored, I just wanna invite you just to stand, just right where you are, and I'm gonna pray for you. Stand up and just say, that. include me in that. I'm tired, I need God to restore my soul, I need God to put me back together again. If that sounds like a beautiful idea to you, where your shepherd would restore your soul. Stand and join these other people. The fruit of restoring one's soul is peace. That's what God wants to breathe into us, peace. If you would say you're in the next category, you would say, uh, I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now. And wow, I need the comfort of the rod and the staff. I need the protection and the direction. I'm in it. If that's you, stand up. I wanna pray for you. Join these other people. I'm gonna pray that you will take heart that you are going through this. And if you're in the other category, you would say, I am waiting for God to turn the tables. I'm waiting. I'm in the middle right now, but I'm, I'm waiting for God to do that. If that's you, I want you to stand and join these other people. If you're in any of these categories, stand and join these people. I'll include you in this prayer here or if you're online, just stand up in your room right now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, uh, watching this, at any of the campuses. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray for every person who is standing responding to the text, the word of God, Psalm 23. Thank you that we can come to you as our shepherd. I pray that you would restore souls pray that you would do it today. I pray that you would do it this week. I pray that people would be lying down in green pastures and they would be beside quiet waters. And then that you would, in, in, in only the way that you can, be actually repairing people and actually putting people back together, restoring souls, washing and cleansing. I pray for those who find themselves in the valley of the shadow of death you know every detail of their circumstance. You know that because you are all-knowing, but you also know that because you are with us. And your rod and your staff are protecting us and directing us, and we take comfort in the fact that you are at work, our shepherd. 
And for those who are still waiting for the table to be prepared in the presence of our enemies, uh, I pray that we will take heart. We know, God, that this is what you do. You take things that are difficult and you make them beautiful. You take brokenness and you bring healing. Uh, You you take very uh, difficult, painful things and you turn them into objects of beauty and and the work of the kingdom of God. So for those who are waiting for the tables to be turned, I pray that they may have a great confidence, a great confidence in the shepherd. Thank you, God, that this is what you do. And thank you that goodness and love are following your sheep. Goodness and love are chasing us down all the days of our lives. And that we, as your sheep, as your people, we dwell in your house. That is where we belong. We are your children. Thank you, God. We pray this in the name of the good shepherd, the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, would everyone stand? If you're not standing, if you would stand right now. On the way in, uh, you would have received uh, a little handout like this. And uh, there is a little tear-off portion, a little card, or card, as you may say. And um, if, you, if you would say, I, I need to know this shepherd. I wanna give my life to Christ. I wanna give my life to the shepherd. Then there's a way that you can begin this journey with Jesus. You can fill out this card and then you can check the, the, the box at the bottom and you can hand this in on the way out. And if you're wanting to get connected at the church, then in the lobby, in the, in, the area, uh, in the lobby area, there's an area called Starting Point, and that is a great place for you to actually get started. Now, it is my uh, privilege to be back with you guys next week. I'm gonna be speaking on uh, what the Bible says about anxiety, what the Bible says about worry and how to manage that and how to, to work with that. The Bible has ancient wisdom that speaks to today's anxiety-written life. So if you know someone who is particularly anxious, Maybe they're worried about you inviting them to church. Whatever it is, get them here next week. We're going to be speaking directly to them. It's been a joy to be with you, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.